Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. Our guest today is Australian guitarist Pliny, who I think is one of the most interesting guitar players in the scene. And I mean, if Steve Vai describes you as the future of exceptional guitar playing, you know you're doing something noteworthy. Anyways, I introduce you to Pliny. Pliny, welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. Good morning, and good early morning. Good evening. Thank you. So we were talking about how musicians hate to uh, wake up early, and I've always been that way. I used to get in trouble for it. My dad used to tell me that if I didn't start waking up earlier, I was going to end up working at the gas station down the street. He would tell me this when I was a little kid, and that I got it in my head that losers sleep late. But now I know, being an adult, that uh, hours are just weird for musicians. It's not necessarily that they don't sleep. They just have um, an interesting sort of schedule. At least that's what you hear. But from doing all these podcasts, this one and URM, and just being around lots of people, um, I started to notice that there is a, um, a type that do wake up at like five or six every single day and keep the exact same schedule every single day, they tend to be very productive. So just out of curiosity, even though you hate waking up early, do you keep a similar schedule every day? Only loosely, but I 100% agree. The most human-seeming musicians that I know are the ones that actually do wake up. And in like probably the rarest combination ever as opposed to never waking up <laughs> that's well the greatest musicians don't wake up after 27 so yeah that's true <laughs> they did wake up at one point then they stopped <laughs> but i'm sorry i cut you off what were you saying i guess a rare combination that i can think of of someone in a band to be extremely human is my drummer because i don't think of all the drummers i know they're usually the least normal people but my drama is both <laughs> normal and wakes up in the morning. So that's a bit of an anomaly, but he's definitely very functional and productive. I'm, I have a schedule, but it's kind of, it starts when I wake up. It doesn't start when my alarm goes off, if that makes sense. Yeah. So do you basically know what you're planning on doing that day in advance? In the example of today, I knew I was doing this podcast and I my life is so slow right now that if I have one thing on my calendar that that looks busy and I need to like take the whole week off just to prepare for it. <laughs> slow because of uh, COVID lockdown or slow because album cycle is winding down? A bit of all of it. I found when I was making the album that I got in the habit of not really doing much each day. And then when I went into like the full press mode, I would do like one or two interviews a day and that seemed like enough activity um, to be exciting. And I've just sort of, I, I'm not sure what it is. Maybe it's because I'm used to the most exciting thing that a day can be is like being on tour. And even then the only real part of the day is like the one hour set and everything else around it is just the stuff that leads up to it happening. So I kind of treat anything to do with work like that. Like if I need to record a guest solo, uh, I probably set aside the week to just stare at my guitar in the corner for six days and then spend an hour recording it on the seventh day. <laughs> I probably started getting into this because like lockdown just gave us all 
so much time to figure out what to do with. Do you think that during those six days where you're looking at it and the seventh day that you're working on it, those six days, you're formulating it subconsciously? Is like, are you working on it in your head at all or anything like that? Or is it more about just building up the will to sit down and destroy this thing? It depends on the solo. I won't name names, but right now I have three to do. Some of them get the subconscious build-up treatment and some of them get the, oh shit, it's way too late now. I'm finally going to do it. (laughs) (laughs) What does the subconscious build-up treatment, I mean, obviously the subconscious part you can't speak to, but what does that look like otherwise? Are you sitting there thinking about it? Do you have an idea of where it's going to go? Yeah, I'll I'll listen to the solo free track and start thinking about how I want to approach it. Because I guess with guitar solos and especially guest solos, you could probably arrange it in like levels of care, like starting with I will do the first thing that comes to me and that's probably good enough. And then there's like I'll do a slightly twisted unique version of the first thing that comes to me and then there's like i'm going to actually try and evolve my playing style so that when i get to this solo it's not going to sound like the first thing that came to me so i guess kind of all that goes into it but then when it is a guest solo it's also like they probably want it to just sound like the first or second thing that came to you otherwise they would have asked someone else do they usually give you any sort of directive or you figure maybe they're they're hiring you because they love your work. So is it just basically make it sound like you? I think it is make it sound like you. And then depending on my level of friendship uh, with the person is how far I want to push being experimental. Because for me, it's not particularly fun to play a solo that sounds like me. Because um, when I'm playing a solo for myself, I'm always trying to make it sound like the next me or a different me. Um which isn't what the person wanting a guest solo always wants, but like if they are a good friend, I might try and force them to accept something a little stranger and hope for the best. Isn't that the eternal challenge for any artist of any any genre or medium, really, that if they're doing it commercially, meaning for any sort of money at all, they're dealing with the fact that people are paying them because of their past work, and so there's some sort of expectation there, whereas past work is past work. It definitely doesn't represent the current. And so there's there's always this war between sounding like what it is that people know you as and uh, where you're currently at mentally. Do you find that? Definitely. But then there also seems to be a question of like how genuine certain reinventions are or how... Um, I'm trying to think of a good example, but I mean, if I put out a reggae album tomorrow, there would be at least a bit of me that would acknowledge that I don't know what the fuck I'm doing in reggae. And I did it as like some sort of going against the grain thing rather than I was genuinely obsessed with reggae for like 15 years. And I finally built up the knowledge and musical ideas to do it. And I feel like that's with bands and with musicians I think part of the reason that a lot of bands release albums that sound quite similar is because that's what they are good at. And then part of it is that fear that if they change too much, no one will like it. But then I think in the case of changing a lot, 
maybe, and I guess there's no way to really like rate whether something's good or bad, but maybe the new thing that's nothing like what they've done before doesn't have as much to it in terms of the experience and creativity working in that sort of new genre or whatever. So maybe that's why it could also come across bad just because the band hasn't done it that much. Does that make sense? Like when metal bands try to write like radio rock songs, oftentimes it just sounds terrible and it does terrible for them. But in my opinion, most of the time that it does terrible is not because they tried a radio rock song. It's because they tried something that they have no experience doing and they're not good at it yet. So their radio rock songs suck because history shows that there's lots of bands who have been able to do that successfully, but they tended to have good songs that they transitioned into that, that being key. It just falls flat on its face a lot. Like lots of times you'll have bands that have, um, you know, screaming only vocals, and then they get to a point where it's like, I just want to be me. I want to be free. I'm going to have singing. (laughs) (laughs) They try it, and it's just a catastrophe, but not because the clean vocals are the problem. It's that they don't know what they're doing that's the problem. Yeah, and I think what would make it more musically about more musically valid in my opinion like as my own producer is if it was a genuine reggae influence onto my own music so like the muse influence for dream theater rather than i'm going to suddenly try and make a record like i've been a established reggae artist for like five albums or something so you you used an interesting word valid or validity artistically valid how do you define artistic validity i mean and i realize it's a subjective thing but how do you define it for you i think that's one of the most fun things about talking about making art or music is that at the end of the day there's like the opinion that all art is equal and there's who cares what's good or bad but then most of the time you spend doing except for the art that sucks (laughs) (laughs) sorry sorry go on (laughs) <laughs> but the the time that you spend doing it, you're doing it based on your own opinion of what's good or bad. Um, so I guess the validity is subjective, but you have to build like your own version of an objective world for your subjectivity to live in, or maybe the opposite of that. What do you mean by creating your own version of an objective world? Because uh, if it's objective, how are you creating your own version? I guess that's the trick. Because for some reason, like most of us agree what a good metal kick sounds like and a good metal rhythm guitar tone. Like, I think there's probably like a majority consensus of what's a good metal mix and what's a bad metal mix. But then there's definitely going to be some people who hate all the ones that most people think are good and think the drums should have more room mics and way less spot mics or something. And so that's like kind of their worldview versus someone else's worldview where like I'll naturally listen to a whole bunch of bands because I like the mix and if I come across a band whose songs I like but I can't stand the mix because it doesn't seem good in my worldview then I can't really tolerate the band even if the band's like writing (laughs) objectively good songs so it is it's a total mess I guess I think I see what you mean, though. If there's this objective standard for a metal kick drum, maybe, like, that it's clicky, 
you know, so there's that five to eight K, then it's scooped in the middle and then it's uh, bumped in the low. So it looks like a smiley face and it's usually not a real kick drum <laughs> or it's usually one sample, <laughs> single sample. You know, that's like a typical way to describe, at least in engineer terms, just a typical metal kick drum. And I guess that would be the objective world. But then within that, you do your own version of that smiley face, single sample metal kick. Is that kind of what you mean? Yeah. And then at the same time, there's someone who's maybe trying to write the exact same song, but does not live by the smiley face kick and likes the like Ringo Starr kick drum sound, even though they like metal. And like, that's not wrong but it's so small of a minority of people who are trying to write metal music that it makes it seem wrong to sort of entertain that idea. I guess it must be hard to really figure it out because with technology or like kitchen appliances or cars or something, you can measure efficiency at least. So even if it looks different, maybe it looks less cool or more cool, it does the job better or worse. Whereas music, I guess the job is to make you feel something. So I don't know. Is that the job of music? I guess so. I think so. It's either to make you feel something or to support something that's supposed to make you feel something. Or if we're, if we're looking at the artistic side of music, you know, like, because it can be accompanying a motion picture or something, then its job is to support whatever feeling that, moving picture is supposed to supposed to make you feel but brown in response to the validity or lack thereof of older production styles i think um i think it's important to note that uh anything you do becomes the past right at some point so that's all music ever but there's some music that was the high point for its time period at least uh production wise like the other day at the gym for instance uh one of the corn records from the late 90s early 2000s came on the one after issues untouchables that album cost them four million dollars to make and i don't think it has the best songs out of their catalog but it has some good ones but man it still sounds amazing um and yet maybe it's not quite as polished as some newer stuff but it's still you can tell that it's the high point of people using that type of technology. It's uh, its like the apex of analog recording. It sounds really, really tremendous. So I think that um, you have to look at the context of what something means at the time that it came out. And it can still make you feel something, but I think if we're talking about, uh, if we're talking about whether or not it's a, uh, it's valid. I think it's time period and it's context matters too. Also, just not just with recording quality, like if you're talking about music that spawned a movement or changed things, for instance, we might not be able to relate to it in the same way as someone who was there, like, you know, people in the 60s, for instance. I love a lot of their music, but I wasn't there. So I don't really know what it was like to go see, you know, Led Zeppelin or Black Sabbath when they were new bands. Like, I don't know what that's like. I'm sure it was powerful as hell, but I don't have that experience. So it didn't change my world the way it did for them. The context matters. 
because objectively, if you uh, if you put it up against modern metal or something, it's like soft dad music, right? Um, <laughs> to so, if you took somebody who had never heard either, total blind, deaf taste test. I'm pretty sure that they would think that one sounds fucking heavy as hell and the other one sounds like easy listening in comparison. So the I think the context does matter a lot. Um, I guess that could be a consideration into what you think is good or bad as you're making it is trying to imagine whether it can provide a feeling to someone listening to it tomorrow and whether that feeling is going to be worth anything to them in 10 years. Because uh, if you make, if I make a reggae song today, it might be funny for about three hours, but it's probably not going to be the reggae that's remembered in 10 years. But if I try and incorporate reggae into a prog song in a way that I haven't heard before, maybe that feeling will be worth something to someone who heard it and hears it again later in life, maybe. Do you consciously think about that kind of stuff while you're writing? I don't know anymore what's like genuinely subconscious and what's something that I said once in a podcast and now I believe it. What my, one of my main goals when I'm writing is to write something that is as good as I can do today but also will still be meaningful in some way in the future and isn't just me sort of being excited about some musical idea that's like trendy or cool to me only in the present. So trying to always give something like longevity, even though that's quite impossible to do. But I mean, is that running through your head while you're working, like actually sitting there working on something like coming up with a solo? Is it newsflash? This better matter in 10 years, <laughs> motherfucker. <laughs> a, a little bit in in the sense that I don't let myself or I try not to let myself get away with doing something that will definitely be impressive the first couple of times it's listened to only. Like I absorbed so much monuments and periphery and those bands when I was starting to record my own music and I made little like gent riff clips. I don't know if that's a dirty word to you guys, but I don't care. Helped start a movement. Own it. Yeah. This makes me think of this uh, orchestral piece you may or may not have heard of called Bolero by uh, Ravel. And it's kind of a controversial piece among classical dorks. Um, reason being is that it was written as an exercise, almost like these gent riffs that you're talking about, that you got excited because you were writing something that was in this style that you were excited about, but not something that you're actually seriously writing um, for, you know, for what you it is that you do. And in all the formal styles of art, when people study them, they have to do exercises like illustration exercises, orchestration exercises, composition exercises. There's always these exercises and people don't they're not meant to be real works of art. And so Bolero is just uh, is controversial in the classical community because it's used as it's used as the model of what modern orchestration was based off of or taught off of, at least up till a certain point. Um, it's like perfectly orchestrated, but it's written as a 
total exercise. And you can tell because it's the same idea over and over and over and over and over on a loop for about 15 minutes. And that just builds and builds and builds and builds with its arrangement and orchestration. The, all he was doing was trying different ideas and showcasing different parts of the orchestra. So lots of people say, well, that's not a real piece of music. It's just an exercise. You can tell it's just an exercise. Um, and then other people will say, but it sounds cool. So what's the problem? And it's, it's an interesting question because it does sound cool. So what makes it not valid? I was going to say when he released it, but I guess that's not really a thing, but was Ravel like stoked to show this to the world as though it was a new composition? You know, let me look. I'm going to look that up. Ravel said, I've written only one masterpiece, Bolero. Unfortunately, it has no music in it. (laughs) (laughs) So... Although Ravel considered Bolero one of his least important works, it has always been his most popular. That's uh, from a classic FM.com. So also, not just the validity question, but uh, that brings up an interesting issue. And I know this, having been a songwriter, that uh, you can never tell what people are going to actually latch onto and what the public latches onto is often not what you wish or had hoped that they latch onto. And then lots of times professional musicians or artists get stuck. I mean, I'm saying stuck. That's a real good problem to have, but they get stuck with getting known for something that they don't feel represents them. But what are they going to do? Turn that down. So do you feel that way ever Pliny with your stuff or has that ever come up? A little bit. Um, my most, like my most streamed songs, are not necessarily what I'm most proud of from a compositional point of view. The song from my last album that caught on the best is the one that has a copy pasted, detuned, like pretty much open string, but it's just the first fret riff for the whole time, and that was like one of the less thoughtful moments of writing the album and it seems to be the best received. Um, I don't think I'll do it again based on positive feedback, but I won't not do it again, I guess. If it happens, it happens. Not just from this podcast. Like I've noticed this pattern from the URM podcast. I've noticed this pattern when choosing what songs to have on Nail the Mix with the the mixers, oftentimes what they want to pick is not what would be the most popular. And we always have to make a decision between what will be the most interesting, most educational song that will also get people's attention. Because if they're not paying attention, what are we even showing them? So, But then even further back when producing bands, um, that all, the problem was always what does the band want as the single versus the commoners like the label and their management and even further back to when I was touring with people and um or with my own band there was always that yeah we hate this song but everybody loves it so we play it every night so in my experience this is an age old age old sort of thing and we've had plenty of people on here like, for instance, uh, Mike Stringer from uh, Spirit Box was on recently. We were talking about uh, that riff in that song, Holy Roller, um, which is just a mega riff. Have you heard it? Yeah. 
Yeah. You know the riff. Yeah. It's fucking awesome. He calls it a stupid riff. Like, he had a hard time um, acknowledging its validity because uh, it just came out and uh, not much thought went into it. But it's great. And I feel like if artists stopped themselves or deleted all those types of ideas, the state of music and art would be way worse off than it really is. So it's almost like sometimes one of the most important factors in getting good, awesome art into the world is to not let the creator um, shoot it down (laughs) too soon. Yeah. Do you think if a band or an artist makes a song of 10 albums, one of them they don't care about, which is the best to the most people. An album of 10 songs? (laughs) Because you said a song of 10 albums. Oh, did I? Oh, yeah. Just making sure that that's what you meant. I did mean an album of 10 songs. Okay. And one of them, which they think is the worst, turns out to be the fan favorite. Do you think it it takes having made the other nine for that one to exist? Yeah. Or, well, it depends. Depends where in order they wrote it, though. I think everything they wrote previous to that, whether it's the other nine on the current record or the 500 leading up to it, I think everything that they wrote previous to that one song had to happen in order for it to exist, if that's what you mean. Yeah. So it's so in the case of the fan's ear, it's sort of like the nine masterpieces in the artist's perspective are just the exercises to produce the like great song, which the artist thinks might suck. Ravel's whole catalogue is in the fans' opinion, is just a bunch of exercises to produce... <laughs> For the most part. <laughs> to produce Bolero, the greatest masterpiece. The greatest <laughs> exercise of all time. <laughs> I remember, man, seriously, with that piece, I remember watching it performed and being like, I know what they mean, but this is so cool. Why can't they just like it? Well, I mean, the, pri- the crowd liked it, but I mean, like, the, the purists, <laughs> the elitists. Why can't they just acknowledge that it's cool it's a good piece of music so do you get this thing that a lot of musicians get that if you haven't spent enough time on something you don't think it's good i'm just curious because one of the first things you said was the different levels of care with a solo or level one is just the first thing that comes to you so do you kind of feel like if you haven't spent a ton of time on something and warped it into something that it wasn't when it started that maybe it's not everything it could be or it's not as valid? Not necessarily, because I think if I listen back to it in a few years, pretty much anything that I make will just sound like something I made in that year, Um, because I guess the thing that validates it, whether I put in an hour or a week, is that I've put in years and years before that to make it like at least a pretty good guitar solo, hopefully in the opinion of the person that asked for it. And the the sort of extra care that goes into it or experimentation is more for me, which is something that I'll feel like in this week or in this month because I've put more time into trying to expand how I play guitar, but I won't. it won't really mean anything to me when it's like the guitar solo I did 10 years ago for someone. So it's hopefully still going to be good to everyone but me either way. But like for my own personal feeling right now, I might feel 
lazier or I might feel more productive if I try and like sort of learn in tandem to creating it. How do you know when something's done? Who knows? Part of it's an instinct for sure. The same way as like knowing if something's good or worth pursuing. One thing that helps it sound finished is when it sounds like other music. Um, so relying on having a good rhythm section play on it and a good engineer mix it means that even if it maybe it wasn't finished compositionally, it definitely sounds like it's finished. <laughs> yep. Like it sounds like a real piece of music. Yeah. I know what you mean. The first time I had a good mixer mix something of mine, I was like, oh, wow, this sounds like a song now. <laughs> you know, like going from my mixes to a Colin Richardson mix, like it was not necessarily depressing, but it was definitely going from my shitty mixes to a Colin Richardson mix. Like there couldn't be a starker contrast between sounding finished versus not sounding finished. Um, so... To me, that's like the extreme example, though, of what you're of what you're talking about, of having it having it sound like music. Do you feel like also um, sometimes when you add certain musicians to it, it starts to sound like music more or like like real music, whereas maybe on its own it doesn't. <laughs> I mean, I hope that it sounds slightly like music on its own. Well, I said maybe for a reason because <laughs> it could just be like in your head. Yeah. And I think that extends to the other parts of putting it together, like arranging it. Like a riff that you record one center guitar isn't going to sound as finished as two left and right guitars, even though compositionally it's identical. Um, so maybe, and this is something that I'm guilty of for sure, like it can start to feel more finished when I've crammed so many synths in there that like logic is crashing or I just can't hear what I'm adding anymore. You're literally finished. <laughs> like a lot of the stuff we've talked about, it's a very subjective way to reach a concept of finished that works for you personally, which I suppose is that it does, it sounds like stuff that you like at the time, which could be because of what's in there in terms of instruments or mix quality or the people playing other instruments and all those things that let you, I guess, just believe that it's finished. <laughs> So just out of curiosity, um, because we've talked about the public's perception, we've talked about um, the rock star idea of not having to wake up at any point in time, we've talked about commercial success, but uh, the style of music that you play, which you've done very, very well in, isn't you know known for being what you go into if you're looking for commercial success or to become a rock star though i i do believe that your greatest chances at succeeding in music are doing music you're passionate about but if you had goals or have goals of like being as big as possible would you or why did you choose what you do i think i chose a lot of it way before i ever thought about uh the size of the audience that was possible or anything like that like i just started making music for fun because I wanted to sound like Brown or sound like someone else and it seemed like a cool way to spend time. And then I accidentally had a bit of an audience and then I guess I got a taste for like, what do I have to do to get a third Facebook like? Or like, what do I do for a hundredth Facebook like? Uh, but without really ever trying to make that come from the music. So I try to treat the music as like 
the fun thing that I do in whatever way that I feel like doing, and then once it exists, then I'll do my best to, like, get as big of an audience as possible for it, which I suppose is, like, some little competitive part of me um, that doesn't really have a function, but because I do it, I can't help it. And I guess that's what a lot of people just do in life. I don't know if that's built into everyone or just a lot of people that if you do something, you want to do more of it or bigger of it or something like that. I don't know. Do you feel like if you write or like if you get a, a certain sized audience, which is totally sustainable for like money and happiness, but you still want it bigger for some reason? It's human nature, isn't it? So I actually think there's different types of people uh, when it comes to this. There are some people who are happy to just exist and just want, they just want to do their job and have a comfortable uh, life with all their needs met. And they will tell you that they don't want more than that. They might see somebody with a lot of success and say, that must be cool. But they don't really care. They don't really associate that type of success or achievement as something that's really relevant to them, even though they will consume the things that that person puts out. Um, whereas I think there's some people who, could, no matter what they get, they're going to want more. And they could have, they could be number one in whatever it is that they were going for. They can be filthy rich. They can have. Everything that from the outside looks like that person got there, like wherever there is, um, and they'll still want more. But I think that that's, that drive right there is what got them there in the first place is not being satisfied with everything that came before it. But it's not like you can have that in you, the never being satisfied thing, and then suddenly turn it off once you achieve or accomplish some milestones or goals that side of you is what got you there and so it's kind of a it's kind of the trade-off um, if you want to be successful at something you just have to accept that you'll never be satisfied ever <laughs> it doesn't it doesn't there's always a price in life and I think that's the price of success is never being satisfied let me just define the entrepreneur's curse to you because I think it's the same for musicians and creative people just for anyone listening who hasn't heard me say it it's this curse to always want to do everything you possibly can so if you have a million ideas uh, i don't mean like a million ideas in the song though that could be a way that it comes out but like um i could become great at archery and i want to be great at guitar and i want to do martial arts too and i want to get great at driving really fast oh i just bought a camera uh gonna become a great photographer would entrepreneurs do this where like they think they can start a hundred businesses and every one of those businesses is going to be on every single social media platform possible. And they're going to, they're going to have their social presence be max, the max doable on every single one of those across all of the businesses. And then each one of those businesses is going to spawn sub businesses and we're going to do it all. And then we're also going to have 8% body fat and not just that we're going to sleep four hours a night and date a 10, like all that stuff. It's just nonstop, but uh, but I think that that's that's the entrepreneur's curse because what gets you somewhere in the first place is the same thing that uh, that doesn't let you ever ever stop. So 
I personally try to be mindful of that and focus on like one or two or three things tops and just make that my thing. But so I guess now that I defined it, do you have that? I definitely have it in ways and directly in terms of music. I think it was either helped or not helped by growing up watching music DVDs. Cause like I've played a show to 500 people, but I've never played a show at Budokan or like Webster Hall or oh, not Webster Hall, Webster, one of those huge things. So now I just have to do it. Or what was the point of watching like Dream Theater do it when I was a kid? So there's a bit of like, until yep. I've done the things that I've seen my heroes do, I haven't quite like made it in my own eyes. Um, but I think one thing that I'm hopefully quite good at is just being mindful of it uh, so that I can still be happy um, from day to day. Like I'm probably happier doing one podcast today than I would be doing a hundred. Even if there is a little part of me that's like, come on, dude, you could get more followers. Do them all. Yeah. Followers, more followers, like do it for the followers. Like there's definitely a little part of me that's like that. The mindful part is like, you'll enjoy your day more when you do one and then especially when it's ours. Yeah. And then take a month off. <laughs> it's been studied that creativity is a finite resource that we need to renew, whether we're renewing it overnight through sleep or longer term, you know, over weeks uh, after having expended it over long periods of time. It's uh, the part of the human condition is that we can't just be at max creativity all the time. We have to recharge. So I don't necessarily think that that's a bad thing that you have on days and off days. That's just you being a human. I think the bad thing is not understanding that and um, and then letting it get to you rather than understanding that it's much like lifting weights. You're not growing while you're lifting. You're growing while you're resting. And if you don't rest, you're not going to grow. It can throw you for a loop mentally, understanding that. So, Pliny, when you're saying about the do it for the follows, do it for the likes sort of thing. <laughs> so I'm sure that there's lots of things that you have done to this point that your heroes have done. I'm sure there's a whole lot of those that you can check off. But does that change how you feel? Yeah, I mean, I got cool stories to tell my friends and to tell at masterclasses and on podcasts, what, which I'm doing in order to do more. <laughs> yeah, but walking around and eating and looking at the guitar on those days or living your life, do you feel any better because you, like, does it feel any different? Like you of now, do you feel different than you of 15 years ago who maybe hadn't done those things yet? Yeah, I think I do. Um, I've always been pretty like calm and sort of lacking in expressing much ever. Uh, but I think it's like a slightly bigger smile when I'm walking around <laughs> expressing nothing because I feel like I've spent the last few years well and that, I guess, helps me try to predict that the way I'm spending now and will be spending the future is going to be on a similar path. So it's kind of like reinforcing like, hey, you, you were doing the right thing those times, so stick with it. It's interesting you say that because... I'm divided on this. I want to hear your take on it because lots of times I'll accomplish something that I really wanted to accomplish, like whether it's a sales goal or something in my career or 
just something that I had been thinking about for a long time. It could be personal too. And then I get it. And then the feeling's like, next, what's next? I have a hard time really giving a shit once I got that thing. Uh, however, if you go out in a macro sense, um, I do feel way better now than I used to, uh, far more confident. And I think it's because of all those those wins along the way of actually being able to do the things I wanted to do. It makes me feel like when I say that I'm going to do something that it's worth trying because there's a likelihood of actually it not being a waste of time. It makes me feel like there's a little bit of validity towards my efforts and that makes me feel more at ease with life as opposed to always thinking that everything's going to just fall apart because I have no history of things working out. Is it kind of like that? Like, where do you stand with that sort of thing? I think it is like that. And I think because a lot of, a lot of the goals that we might get to tick off are ones that like, by the nature of what they are, require a lot of time going into them. Like to write a song takes at least like the days or weeks of writing the song, but also took like the years of learning all the different skills to do it. So once you finish it, you might not feel like you've done much and you might just want to write the next song, but then you do notice in like five years later, 10 years later, you're like, wow, I made that song with like those tools that I had at the time and that knowledge that I had at the time and it becomes more meaningful. Um, and the same with, I guess, like certain venue sizes or tours that you got to play or people you got to meet or jam with. Like I got to do a Steve Vai um, camp and we jammed together. The actual jam, I have a video of it and I still haven't posted anything from it because what I played sucked. Like nothing about it was good. But the fact that it exists makes me super super happy probably the further i get away from it because the minute that it finished i was like well i fucked that up the next day it's like well i got to do it and then it turns into just like a really fond inspiring memory that like whatever i did to get to that point led to it and so it's fun to keep going and then i think maybe what confuses it is when the feedback that you get about something being good or bad is instant like you write a song you put in the years to get like the abilities to write a song and then you release it and then the first few days of feedback is like a number on a screen like with a thumbs up and that's i don't think that's like a it's a very weird thing to validate what went into it but then when you look back on it it can be more meaningful i forgot what i was trying to say but I think my point was that it, you sort of need to recognize whether the milestones are like what their purpose is. Like, I guess with sales numbers and that sort of thing, I don't think you're ever really going to be happy with it because they're all just sort of points on a graph that you're trying to make continuously go up. So like four is always going to be better than two and a hundred is better than four. And so you'll never be really that happy but maybe after 10 years you look back and just see the fact that you've grown year after year that's the thing that makes you happy rather than the specific like milestone of the day i don't know if any of that makes sense <laughs> it does make sense you're not going to be in love with really the majority of the process if you are 
more in love with the chase itself and with the process itself, um, there's more of a likelihood that you'll keep on doing it because that is what eats up 99% of, of your life. Um, the actual moments of achievement, they, they come and then they go and then it's over, the end. It's like almost like it never happened unless you have a video of it, but you'll never get it back anyways. This must be why drummers love stick tricks because the result is just the snare hit, but like if they can have fun on the way to it, then that's what makes them happy. <laughs> that and people's reaction in the moment to something that takes them like no work. <laughs> yeah. All right. Being that you've kind of described yourself as someone who um, you kind of do things when you're ready. You try to not do them when you're not ready, for instance. I'm sure that you work a lot harder than you give yourself credit for or than you're letting on. But that said, do you still practice, I guess, regularly? I mean, I never practiced by any like convention of trying to do something and then doing it badly until I could do it well, aside from recording music. Like that was my only practice was I want to try and record a guitar part that sounds cool and then figuring out all the things that have to go into it, like learning to mute strings or learning to tune a guitar or play like a note in a scale that's more interesting than leaving it out. So I guess that was my practice was just hours and hours and years of trying to put together stuff that sounded cool to me and then having to get good enough at certain skills to make it happen. And I think I still spend that much time, which is a lot of time, like a lot of every day, at least thinking about music or thinking about stuff related to music. But I guess if you call that practice, maybe it's more hours of listening to other music or listening to podcasts that might help me learn something about creativity as opposed to like trying to add a BPM to my picking hand because um, that's what technology's for. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So if that was never really, if traditional practice wasn't really part of your life, how did you accumulate skill? How did you stack them skills? <laughs> um, just through that process of recording guitar and recording things, um, trying to cover riffs of bands that I like, trying to write riffs that sounded like bands I like, and then having to do it to a click track, having to do it so that it sounds in time, and then eventually learning how to play my songs in full so I could play them live, and then hearing how shit it sounded and trying to do it better. It's through, I guess, through all the practical applications, like doing what needed to be done in order to see that result, rather than like abstractly practicing stuff in case it might be useful later. So it's always outcome oriented. Yeah. I relate to that. Do you think that, um, you know how there are a lot of guitarists who can play like any style and or maybe write riffs mm -hmm. in any style but aren't necessarily known for any one bit of their original music do you think there's a difference between people who follow what interests them and then become known for it compared to people who are really good do you think there's like that's a learned skill yes do you think it's learned to sort of decide what's relevant for you and what's just learning for knowledge sake? No, different people are wired differently. 
And I look at it at this spectrum as art versus craft. And I feel like with some exception, there's some freaks out there <laughs> who instead of it being a spectrum, it's more of like meters, like video game skill meters, you know, where somehow they got a cheat code and they're maxed out both on art and craft. But I think for most people, it's a spectrum and some there's some ratio of their artistic side versus their their craftsman side and um there's a lot of musicians who accomplish a pretty amazing amount of skill but skewed more towards the craftsman side and i feel like uh that's kind of what you're talking about is people who can play lots of different things play them very very well maybe they don't have much of an artistic voice but they're still good. I mean, you can choose to write your own music and you can choose to learn a bunch of other people's music. Like you can make those choices. But I think if we're talking about natural inclinations, I think that people are typically inclined one way or the other. Normally, I haven't seen too many people who are all about their own voice, who also are all about being a jack of all trades. It's not common where you fall on that spectrum doesn't really correlate to how good you are. You can be fucking incredible anywhere on that spectrum. It's just more like what your personality type is. Do you think it's a, a choice or maybe even more so a good choice if you spend time to try and recognize what sort of person you are so that you can be happy with your end results either way? Yes, yeah, so it's kind of like falling in love. You don't choose how you fall in love. You can choose whether or not you believe that that person is going to be like programming your autopilot to go into a mountain or um, whether or not that person is going to help elevate your life. But you don't get to choose um, <laughs> you don't get to choose how you feel, basically. You get to choose what you do about it. And I, I think that the more aware you can be of those things, the better. I think the people who tend to do the best from what I've seen, you know, here and there people get super fucking lucky here and there. But overall, uh, people who do very, very well tend to have a good bit of self-awareness and know that they're, they know what type of person they are. They know under what conditions they thrive. They know what really, really motivates them. They know what they're into, what they're not into, and they choose accordingly. They're not going to just do things for the sake of doing them, I guess. So, yeah. Does that answer your question? I think it's a yes. Yeah. It is a yes. And then where does that, like, how does that self-awareness play into when you're so goal-driven and you still never enjoy anything? You can examine why it is that you're that way. Like, for in my case, for instance, it took discovering that actually I'm into the chase. And I didn't realize that when I was younger. So I'd get depressed over achieving things and then not caring. And as my self-awareness grew and I realized, actually, I love making deals. I love talking to people I'm working with and um, deciding that we're going to do something huge and then setting those plans in motion and making those things come together. It's not so much when you actually get the thing back, the outcome, that's not that's not as important to me. I mean, obviously, I would rather have the good outcome than the bad outcome. Understanding that that's how I'm wired has helped me be way happier. 
in life, which has also helped me do cooler things. So now if a person really enjoys nothing, like they have the self-awareness and uh, there's literally nothing that makes them happier or brings them joy or anything, then um, that sucks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's true though it does suck yeah i think the majority of people's stress and anxiety is self-created anyways i mean you know there's good stress um and then there's real stress but then there's also about 90 percent of it that's just people shortening their lifespan for no good reason yeah i think i don't know why or how i figured that out but it happened at some point and made a lot of stuff a lot more enjoyable just because like deadlines a lot of them can be unnecessary stress or like things that are out of your control if you can find a way to not worry about them until the times that you actually have some control it does make things a lot more pleasant you were talking about your competitive nature earlier. How do you balance your competitive nature with staying low stress? It's almost like they're in, at least on the surface, in opposition to each other. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, <laughs> I guess part of, there's a philosophy that I've successfully sold to myself, which is that my music was interesting to an audience in the beginning because it was the music of, like a young dude who was doing it for fun with no goals other than to spend whatever time felt right to put together music and release it into the world. So for me to continue making music that has that sort of impact, I need to make sure I still keep that like sort of happy exploring child alive, which means make sure I don't spend too much time doing stuff that I don't want to do or that I think could be stressful and I guess I've been like successful enough at thinking that that's true that I do it, but there is still the competitive side of me that's like, bro, you're one year into a pandemic and you don't own a microphone and you're not doing a live stream and you should have a Patreon <laughs> because the numbers definitely add up and like all that stuff. But for some reason, they're like, keep your inner child alive and that's the best way to go has been winning so far. And so I guess they're in a, like, a happy enough balance. <laughs> well, do you think that it's either or? Like in your head. I mean, I'm not saying, I don't mean objectively. I mean, in your head, in the story that you tell yourself and you bought into, is it either or? No, it's a balance. The other day, I was walking around with my girlfriend and it was like a beautiful day. We we're in a beautiful suburb looking at beautiful things. And I started feeling a little bit agitated, uh, which was like my competitive side being like, bro, what are you doing? Why are you enjoying your day? No one, everyone's forgetting who you are right now. And like... They've moved on already. Yeah, and here I am doing one podcast, which will kind of keep that at bay for the next little while. And then I'll write some music and then maybe I'll do something else. So it's, I guess, yeah, it's keeping the balance happy. It's interesting to me because you strike me as someone who's got really good self-awareness. You've maintained your... Uh notoriety at least as long as i've known about you and i think the first time i heard about you was what was it it was uh you were doing a guest solo on something i was producing that was maybe the contortionist or something was it that or was it 
it was around the time period I worked with them or reflections or something. Oh, I don't, man, fuck. I don't remember what it was, but like they got you and you sent me the solo and I was like, Oh wow, this guy's good. And, uh, and then I realized that people knew who you were and, um, and you've maintained that you haven't gone away. You've, your stature has actually grown, but I find it interesting that, um, I feel like you've done a really good job staying relevant, even with what you describe as, uh, not taking a super proactive approach. I think definitely you take proactive enough of an approach. I think I've been at least slightly lucky and maybe a little bit tactful in the stuff that I do that keeps my audience engaged is stuff that I really love. Um, I know a lot of bands like start to not enjoy touring as much as they used to. And I've only done about five years worth of tours, but like in that combination of luck and maybe good planning, I have a band that I'm like best friends with and a crew that I'm best friends with. Um, and none of them are burnt out on touring. And I always treated it as something to make sure everyone else was enjoying before I made sure it was profitable. Um, so I feel like it was really easy to do like three or four tours every year for like four years straight. And that was looking back, definitely a huge help for having any sort of audience. Cause that was, that was like a really, a lot of time to spend not at home and a lot of time to spend in like a weird caravan for nine people and like all the sort of stuff that not everyone would enjoy on the basis of just like some people don't like traveling or some people don't like confined spaces or some people don't like not earning money for doing things. I enjoyed aspects of touring enough to want to keep doing it. And I had people around me that enjoyed that experience and hopefully what I could add to it for them enough to want to keep doing it. So that, that activity, which is definitely, I mean, used to be, one of the best ways for a band to build an audience and stay relevant. In the end, it felt sort of effortless to do because it was so fun. And then sort of the same thing for Instagram, but with that balance of like the shit that I post, I know is most of the time not helpful at all because it's like sunset or a tree. But every now and then I'll post a photo of a guitar and remind people, like I guess subtly through that, that they should buy a T-shirt. And I've kind of that comes slightly naturally to me because I guess it's something that I enjoy doing like taking photos of stuff and then occasionally spruiking merch so I've picked the things that are helpful that I enjoy and done them a lot and then done I guess the bare minimum of the other things I'm cutting you off but I want right. to focus on what you just said I think that's brilliant lots of people will will hit me up for advice and will ask or will sound like they want to say, say they're a producer, they want to get their website up and then also start a YouTube instructional channel and then maximize their Instagram presence and then get a Twitch going and then all this stuff, start a blog also, all this stuff, what should they start with? And my answer is always pick one or two things that you are going to actually do. <laughs> that you actually enjoy doing. Uh, so for instance, I'm not crazy about uh, doing YouTube shit. 
I just am not, never have been, but I do love podcasting. So I made the decision that of all the different forms of media that I could put out there that's uh, somewhat promotional in nature, podcasting is something I've shown that I can just do and just keep on going. It's been years and years and years and hundreds of episodes. Maybe it's not as viral as a YouTube video, but it's the thing that I do well at that I can keep on going at. And so I've consciously focused on that um, as opposed to spreading myself too thin. Now, that doesn't mean I won't try new things, but I've identified what it is that I'll actually do. I think that the, the promotion you'll do is better than the promotion you'll think about or beat yourself up for not doing. Basically, the thing that you'll be consistent at is way better than the far more powerful stuff you won't do. Yeah, I totally agree. My point just being that uh, the not having enough hours in the day to do everything you want to do is very, very relative. It's relative and it's not. It's a finite thing. Like We only have X amount of hours, but if you realize that we inhabit the planet with people like that who have the same hours that we do and manage to have Tesla and SpaceX and then also for fun start the uh, the uh, flamethrower company and just make an easy $10 million off of that and uh, make the tunnel. The not have enough time thing, while it's very, very real, it's also not real. It's a, it's a matter of knowing how to utilize the time you do have and what to, what to focus on. And plenty like what you're saying too is uh, you're focusing on the things that you're able to keep going that a, they keep you relevant, but B you'll actually do them C because you actually enjoy them, which yeah. prevents you from getting burned out and starting to hate your career. Yeah, exactly. Maybe I guess some of it's luck. Some of it's that I'm, I happen to be well suited to a career where traveling in shitty conditions is very helpful and I don't mind it. I guess that's something that I'm, I'm lucky to be someone that's like that um, compared to a musical genius that just can't sleep in a different bed because it makes them miserable. I suppose that's a personal luck thing. Maybe you can get better or worse at it something that happens with producers and mixers a lot is that they get paid super late. Oftentimes the record will come out and the label will still not pay you. And you have to get comfortable with the idea of being owed a lot of money kind of constantly. Now I'm not okay with that. Nobody likes it, but I'm not suited for that. Like it makes me insane, which means that I'm not well suited for a long-term production career. Now, I know a lot of people who are well-suited for it. Do they enjoy not getting paid on time? No. But they're cool with it. They'll deal with it. That's fine. It doesn't bother them enough to make them want to stop. And they didn't choose. This isn't about maximizing or minimizing your stress to no stress ratio or anything like that. Like They literally are wired to where it just doesn't bother them the same way that it bothers me. Like I have zero tolerance for it. And no matter what I do to get more comfortable with that sort of thing, I fucking hate it. And there's some people who, <laughs> no matter how comfortable they'll be on the road, they could be on private jets, staying at the Four Seasons every night, and they will still hate it. Because, like Pliny said, waking up in a different bed just 
throws their world into a tailspin. Um, I, I think that uh, some people are just naturally suited for certain things. So if you find something that you are naturally suited for that a lot of other people find unpleasant, well, I mean, of course, you're still human and uh, you still want to make it easier on yourself. But, uh, but that's coming from a place of actually being okay with it in, in the first place. I'm not suited for that because I'm just not okay with it. I'll end up making enemies over it. <laughs> it doesn't matter how much money. That's the thing. Where, like I said, I know people who they do have money. They are owed tens of thousands on top of that, and they're fine. But they were fine when they didn't have money, and they were owed thousands or hundreds. They were just fine. It's not like they enjoyed it, but they were fine. Like, so if we say that something that's good to do for happiness is to find the environment where you get to flourish and then do that, that can crush other dreams. Like, I guess, what does it feel like to know that you maybe won't ever have the production career that you may have dreamed of because some of those circumstances just piss you off too much to really pursue it? Like, how do you... That's an interesting question. I had to accept that also with uh, my musician career. It's not cut and dry, as in like, I'm not suited for this, so fuck it, goodbye. <laughs> I think that would be kind of a psychopathic thing to do. <laughs> Just be able to cut things off. Like, like some people are like that. I'm going to sleep. Good night, guys. <laughs> yeah, I was, I'd be jealous of them. I am jealous of them. The ability to just cut things off, uh, like you don't care, like you never cared. That's uh, show me how to be less human, please. It takes mental work, uh, therapy, and the actual work of getting to know yourself and understanding, like, it takes work to actually understand why something didn't work out. So for me, it's about, uh, well, this situation kept with anything that doesn't work out. If something keeps on not working out, but it's something that I'm good at or that I want to happen, I need to ask myself why it's not working out and uh um and really really analyze and that takes work because you might be faced with a, an answer that's not particularly easy to swallow such as you're just not suited for this it doesn't matter if you want it or not you're not the guy it's not easy and i've found that that crushes a lot of people like a lot of musicians who realize that they're not going to be in slipknot or whatever whatever their dream was they're going to have to be cool with that not happening or be cool with it not happening at all like the music thing that crushes a lot of people but i have the philosophy that uh if something didn't work like the production thing even though i thought i wanted it maybe i didn't actually want that maybe i wanted something like that maybe it's not really my band i wanted to work it was something my band uh did for me or that I thought it would do for me. So while exploring that, I realized actually what I like doing is running things. And I like putting together big ideas that uh, span the globe and have an impact on lots of people. That doesn't have to come in the form of a band. 20-something-year-old me didn't totally get that, but uh, I get that now. But it took the work of uh, actually analyzing, well, why do I want to do a band in the first place? Like, is it because I 
want to have this kind of bond with other musicians and play riffs. No, actually, that wasn't it. Like when you get down to it, that wasn't it for me. So I think understanding what your actual underlying motivation is, is the way to deal with that. Because if you realize that your actual motivation is to do the thing, everything in you is pointing to doing this thing that you're just not going to succeed at. Well, that sucks. And I'm sure there's people in that position. But I think more often than not, the things that we think we want aren't the actual underlying, they're not the reality of the situation. And then it comes out through us procrastinating or not working hard enough or not being tolerant of certain shitty sides of something that other people are just cool with. And uh, you analyze and you realize, wait a second, this was never for me. And I never actually wanted this. I wanted something that this thing that I thought this thing could provide. And when you figure out how to actually get that thing that you're going for, you end up way happier. At least that's how it's worked for me. So not without work takes a while to figure that one out. That was a perfect answer to the point where I want to ask what if you realize that it's not the thing for you, how do you find the thing for you? And that's probably, I mean, that's something that I would love to be able to tell people. So if you have an answer. <laughs> so for, let me ask you something. You feel like you're doing the thing for you? Pretty much, yeah. And I think it seems like it. It'll change over time and there'll be more that I'll add to it or take away from it. But it seems to be like the right direction. Yeah, it is a positive thing. When talking to other people about this, the thing that's really tough about this is that there's no timeline and there's no usual on it. You, some people may never find that thing. Some people might be born knowing what that thing is. Some people might have a bunch of false starts and then figure it out. Some, you know, everything in between, uh, never figuring it out and being born with it exists and there's no <laughs> there's no uh there's no rules or um way to predict if someone's going to figure it out but what i would say is if they are understanding that something's not for them but they don't know what then they need to analyze what it is that they thought they were going to get out of this thing that they then realized wasn't for them they need to do that work they should probably get a therapist don't burden their significant other with this because they're sig <laughs> that's not in the it's not in the job description. But uh, they need to f figure out what it is that actually motivates them and really, really explore that. Like, what have they done in their life where they've been at their best, where they've really effortlessly just achieved or done things beyond what they normally could do or even when not effortlessly what are the things in life where they were totally cool with putting up with the bullshit where putting up with the bullshit didn't take effort even though it is effort to put up with the bullshit the idea of doing it didn't take effort what are those things um and when they look at the future what is it they actually want out of the future I mean, that's different for everybody. And unfortunately, I don't think there's a good, quick answer for when people ask you that. They kind of have to go on their own journey of uh, self-exploration and figure it out. And uh, that sucks for a lot of people because, like I said before, they might, be, they might be faced with answers that aren't in line with what they think they want. 
And so they might have to admit some things that's, that they think suck or that they're afraid to. Wish I had a good answer for you. So it's really like if you take an approach to life of being as aware of how things are making you feel as possible, that's like one of the like best attempts at doing anything you can do. Like a music career, I'm happy to sleep on a bus for a music career, but I'm not going to do it for like door-to-door cookie sales job. And just like recognizing that is probably one of the reasons why I'm happy. I guess the same with EQing your smiley face kick. Like you just got to check in at all times. Like, is this making me feel good or bad? Should I? (laughs) Well, with the tour bus, you said I'm happy to sleep on a bus for a career in music. But is that even the truth? Like what for any career in music or for your career in music? Oh, definitely from pretty much only mine. Like I wouldn't fill in for a band unless I love them as people as much as my own band or the cities I loved as much as like the cities that I go to on my own tour. So yeah, it has to be. Well, what I mean is say a style of music that you fucking hate with people that you hate and a tour schedule that you hate, would you put up with sleeping on a bus for that, even if it meant a career in music? Uh, Not for a career. There'd be like a level of some shitload of money for some small amount small enough amount of time there's like that would mm-hmm. be the equation is the amount of like a reward that i can do something useful with compared to the amount of life that i would waste doing it in order to do it yeah so it's not even just a blanket career in music the career in music that you want which i think is key though i do think some people think they just want a career in music and aren't specific about which one. And uh, then they do get into a situation where they're touring with people they hate in a genre they hate and things they hate, and they don't last because they, uh, they didn't get specific about, about what it is that they're actually after. So it sounds to me like you're actually after doing it, but doing your thing. Like that's super important to you, it sounds like, because it's got to be your thing. Yeah. And I suppose there's a different level of how specific that is for different people because I've met people who all they wanted was a career in music and now they're sort of like the local guitar teacher for their neighbourhood or whatever and that's like the best thing ever because that's their thing more than following any other profession would have been. And then you could get more specific, like it has to be playing guitar, then it has to be playing a certain style of guitar, and then it has to be playing only these songs. And even then you'd get like a band that's been around for 30 years, even playing their own music to a stadium sucks because they have to play a song from 25 years ago that they don't like. And that's not even worth like $10 million a show anymore because it's not the specific thing that they want to be doing. Yeah, so I feel like in that craftsman to artist spectrum we're talking about earlier um the more individualistic the the needed state of affairs is uh the the further on that artist spectrum you are which has a some sort of like on the far end is a little notch that you could call diva i guess where yeah pathological (laughs) yeah (laughs) nothing's good enough for no apparent reason that's when you're a true artist. <laughs> Where do you see yourself on that? Probably on the like healthy side, healthier in terms of f- further away from pathological, but not 
so much towards craft because there's so much about the craft that I admire that I just don't put the time into because like you say, there's a limited amount of time in the day and I'd rather spend four hours walking around, even if that means I'm like 20,000 hours away from actually being really good at guitar. Was there ever a time period where you approached guitar in a very uh, regimented, I guess, traditional sort of way? Or has it been the way you described from the get-go? Pretty much from the get-go. Like my best attempts still only lasted like a couple of days in a row of I'm going to learn like this scale with this metronome. It was very, very short-lived. And I guess I'm also lucky that I didn't have any external pressure. So I didn't, I guess, waste too much time doing that stuff. You know, it's interesting because I can remember at Berkeley, there were players who, you know, weren't cool with the six hours a day of regimented practice, 30 minutes scales, 30 minutes arpeggios, 30 minutes reading, 30 minutes chord scales, like they're, you know, they weren't cool with that sort of thing. And then they beat themselves up tremendously over it to the point of where they eventually quit, where they uh, probably would have done better to take an approach kind of like you, but they couldn't get past the confines of what they thought was the way to get better at guitar. So I think it's interesting. Um, did you have a teacher or someone who encouraged this or that you just started playing and figured out this way that you enjoyed it and got better at it and just, just did your thing and didn't really, didn't really get a uh, sucked into, I have to do it 30 minutes, this 30 minutes, that X amount of hours per day at the end. Yeah. I think super helpfully, my dad is an upright bass player and the way I remember it is that he refused to teach me anything uh, which is probably not accurate, but more like he, all he really do, did was just encourage me to go find stuff that I liked playing and play it rather than try to shape what I learned in any particular direction. And I think because he's like in the jazz world and jazz is to a lot of us like one of the hardest types of music, I would always be like, as a seven-year-old who knew three chords, I'm like, yes, but do, will you teach me jazz today so I can know jazz? And he'd just be like, just find something you like the sound of and learn it. And I think that was probably the most helpful musical education from a musician that I ever really got because um, then that's all I've really done is just spend the time learning the stuff that I uh, want to be able to know and do. Um, and I guess if for people listening to this, to take something from it, it's hopefully going to be something that I heard. There's this guitarist, Brett Garsed, who's Aussie and insane. Oh, he's amazing. I saw or read an interview with him from like way, way, way before YouTube and the internet where he was starting to hybrid pick, um, and nothing, none of like guitar media had hybrid picking it was all alternate and sweet picking was like that's the right thing to do um but it's only because he stuck with the thing that he was interested in and comfortable doing that he ended up being such a like unique and amazing guitarist i guess it's the same for like someone that goes to berkeley and takes a long time to realize that that style of learning doesn't suit them i guess it's great to know that there are 
many, many different ways of learning things or ways that you can have a career in a certain field and none of them is like the right one necessarily. Like you, I guess you found your career in music wasn't a band, wasn't necessarily production, but you still, I would think like in the same position of career, regardless that you like have hoped to be, even though you'll never achieve anything because it's all transient. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's the career is uh, (laughs) where I would have hoped to end up at this point, though it could always be better and bigger. It's what it was supposed to be. Um, I feel confident in that. So in realizing that there's a million different ways to go about it and the traditional path may not be right, I think that um, in realizing that about yourself too, there's a bitter pill some people may need to swallow is that if they realize that the traditional learning path isn't for them, much like you did, well, that means they kind of have to chart their own path. And uh, that right there is like a great filter for uh, lots of, it eliminates lots of musicians and artists and people from the running because the idea of charting their own path is enough to uh, scare them off. So once you realize that that's kind of the way you got to do it, I think then and there, you'll see that some people dig in and just keep going. And then some people just, they can't learn on the traditional path. They don't have what's in them to uh to chart their own path and that's it game over but i'm not judging that i don't think that's a bad thing like i think that's part of knowing yourself maybe that does mean that they're not suited for a career as a guitar player better learn that sooner than later yeah i guess yeah and like a, a positive spin on that and something that i've been finding out more that i think probably a lot of people have is how cool hobbies are like there are so many things that I could never have a career at, but I can do for an hour a week that's super fun. And I suck at it, but it's fun because there's no pressure to get good or to make a living from it, like cooking or something like that. And I feel that way about music sometimes. Like it's almost better for it to be a hobby than to try and have a career at because it's such a like innocent, fun thing to do that you would hope that you wouldn't like ruin it with all your shitty fears and doubts and failures and stuff. Man, teach me how to have a hobby. I don't have any. I never have. It's hard for me to do anything without getting serious about it. That's great. What about your um, the walk you're about to go on? What sort of walk is this? Serious walk. <laughs> 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 it's kind of of funny to say that isn't it no i take the fitness thing very seriously though i don't see it like a hobby i see it as a a crucial thing i don't enjoy it either (laughs) that's like that's definitely there's this like a caricature of an artist that's exactly the same it's like I, i don't enjoy it at all but i have to do it and i take it very seriously so maybe it's it's more your your attitude to hobbies is just different to others' attitudes to some hobbies. Your attitude seems way more healthy. <laughs> yeah, it seems far less tortured and you still do the same things. <laughs> Which I think is really cool. So 
We've got some questions here from listeners. Cool of uh, or ask you a few. Sure. Max Koshi, or however the hell you pronounce his name, is uh, how do you approach meter? For example, four four or eleven eight in your music. A lot of prog guys do the mashuga thing four four with polyrhythms, but I think you try to make really odd feeling meter sound like four four. I've listened to a lot of music with different time signatures in it for many many years, and. I like the sound of it, so I've gone looking for weirder and weirder versions of it. And then there's like a there's definitely years and years of delay between hearing something and then uh, like internalizing it properly. But I guess some of the music that I loved a few years ago had ways of playing those time signatures in it that now I use when I go to write a song. For example, someone like Virgil Donati, the drummer, or Tigran Hamasyan, the piano player. They both use odd times in a way that's really different to someone like Meshuggah or Dream Theater. Um, so I guess I just recommend hunting down music that's always on the weird end of what you're comfortable listening to. And then when it comes to writing, you'll be able to incorporate that stuff in a way that sounds a little more natural. So you're not sitting there thinking about meter. You're trying to make music that feels cool to you. And you have these wacky influences that just come out. Yeah, but there'll be a point in time where I hear something weird and then have to think or like tap on my leg, like, what is this? So that I can try and do it and then try and do it a bunch of times. And then it becomes something that I can sort of do. But it's not, I'm going to be cool. Today I'm writing an 11.8. No. I didn't think so. Okay, question from Johan Leclerc. What's your take on the modern approach to making a living as a musician with uh, more and more musicians becoming businessmen? I riff hard, Horizon Devices, maybe your, uh, your plug-in. I think it must come at least semi-naturally or by accident. I, I don't know, in the case of riff hard, how did it start? URM was kind of the model and wanted to have URM not just be for recording, like have a version that did the that had the same kind of impact on guitar players, but not do something that uh, a million other places did. What was the most important thing, and who would be the person who embodied that? And then Brown made sense because, uh, like, he and I share that idea that uh, rhythm guitar and riffing is the most important thing couldn't just do it with a guitar player musician artist that doesn't actually believe that right like someone that's fucking awesome and great at rhythms too but doesn't actually think that they're the most important thing it wouldn't uh wouldn't work so it's kind of like the same as urm i actually thought there was a legitimate hole out there in how people were learning to mix and uh, record heavy music they could learn everything else, but except that wasn't taken seriously. It just seemed like it had to be there. And then with the guitar education out there, there's a ton of it. There's always been a ton of it. What did I always encounter in the studio? There's people couldn't fucking play a rhythm ever, <laughs> ever. The, and what is it that you listen to? 99% of a song is rhythm. So uh, it kind of... It kind of made sense, but I think uh, with something Johan was saying about more and more musicians becoming businessmen, well, I think that that's not new. 
artists have traditionally been supported by patrons over the centuries, whether it was the church or some super rich person. But as soon as that changed and it was no longer a thing, especially in styles of music that aren't considered or types of art that aren't considered fine art, like classical um, or uh, painting or something, the money has had to come from someplace else in order to float it. And so musicians are just doing what they have to do because there isn't a patron that, uh, that just floats it. I think uh, if there were patrons like that, uh, maybe they wouldn't become businessmen, but they're doing what they have to do in order to, to make it all work. Um, that's my thoughts, though. What do you think? Yeah, and I think the ones that he mentioned or the ones that we all hear about are the ones where the thing works because it's also something that's genuinely interesting to them as well as being something that can, like, have a space as a business. Like, you found or you knew Brown or whatever to do Riff Hard, and so that works, but it wouldn't work if you got anyone else or found someone who maybe was interested in rhythm guitar but wasn't didn't have the right work ethic or something like that so it's probably the same for everyone like i know with the neural plugin i never released presets like i know a lot of guitarists re- release preset packs and that's like a great way to add to music royalties and i never did it because i never found it interesting and then doug called me from neural to do a plugin, which never really occurred to me, but I think Doug's a genius. And I said yes straight away. So I had like, one of the biggest benefits was that I said yes straight away because they started making it. And if I hadn't said yes, then like, there was also Nolly and Tosin and everyone else that's making them to also say yes, but it just happened that I did it and we started working on it and now it exists and it's something I genuinely use all the time, so it's easy for me to kind of keep promoting it. But that wouldn't definitely wouldn't have worked if I had no interest in what my role in doing that would be and continue to be. So I guess that's the case for like all the musicians who have accessory companies or guitar companies or software. It's partly out of necessity, but also we hear about them because it's something that is right for them to be doing. Does that make sense? Yeah, there's many more you don't hear about. This last question is from Marcin Visaki. How do you incorporate music theory in your songwriting and improvisation? I feel like the new album has more jazz vibes than the previous ones, and I wondered if there was a conscious effort to construct this kind of harmony and melody, or do you go with uh, what sounds good to you, and that's just what happened to come out? It's definitely the latter Um, What sounds good to me has changed over time and has gotten more muddled up the more I listen to different kinds of music and more like fusion stuff and weird guitarists. Uh, So when I write now, like, I think it all starts off in the same place, which is I used to love Green Day and Blink-182. So like I might start a song that uses those four chords, but the way I play some of the chords is that I'll add notes that weren't in the original chord on top and then I'll do it in a time signature that's different and then when I go to play a solo over it I'll try and pick less obvious notes and less obvious places to put those notes in a phrase and so it's like that whole 
I guess it's just evolved through time that every time I do what starts out to be the same thing, I try and do it in a slightly different way and it gets, at this point, <laughs> stranger and stranger and then maybe I'll do a pop-punk album eventually when I get back to the beginning. I, I would like to hear that. After my reggae album. Do you actually like reggae? I don't really know any reggae. I hate ska, I'm just going to say. <laughs> ska, ska is a... Uh, an abomination. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us. It's been a pleasure. <laughs> pleasure. Yeah, it's been cool to finally get a chance to chat, and uh, it's been fun. It has been fun. I think when when we get a chance, we should go for a walk together and see if you enjoy Who, it. Who's more serious? <laughs> I'm down. I'm down. Do you go? You go? You said you go for like three or four hours. Yeah, most days. With a little pause somewhere in the middle for a coffee or a, like sit and look at a bird. <laughs> pretty, pretty low stakes stuff. I don't know. That sounds great to me.